everybody. Jeremiah Jacques here. This is The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. We appreciate you tuning in today, and thank you also for the encouraging feedback that you've sent in to the show so far this season. Please keep those questions and encouraging notes and uh, ideas and other things coming. Our email address is tsar at kpcg.fm. And you can also connect with us on Twitter. We finally launched an account there. Just search for The Sun Also Rises Radio, and it should pop right up. And we'll be sending out um, updates and information there about the show. So please check us out there if you'd like to. Well, the first story in today's episode takes place, as so many stories do, in the maternity ward of an Austrian hospital in the year 1846. Well, maybe not a lot of stories take place in that setting, but that's where this one starts today. And there was a doctor there, a man named Ignaz Simmelweis, a Hungarian man of German ancestry. Dr. Simmelweis was working in the first obstetrical clinic of the Vienna General Hospital, and his job was basically to examine patients in the mornings and to supervise the more difficult deliveries and also to teach students who hope to become obstetricians. The hospital's maternity clinic that Simmelweis worked in actually had two different maternity wards. We'll call them Ward 1 and Ward 2. And both of these wards had ridiculously high rates of maternal mortality. Women would check in to deliver their babies, and in Ward 1, 10% of the women would end up dying from what they called childbed fever. And then in Ward 2, 4% of them would die. So one out of every 10 and one out of every four. Those are just shocking figures. Just for comparison's sake, the maternal mortality rate in Austria today is about four per 100,000. So it was 17,000 times higher in Dr. Simmelweis's clinic. But these mortality rates were not really so unusual for hospitals of that time period. Dr. Semmelweis was still troubled by it, though, and he was really disturbed to see so many of these young mothers dying. And one of the most disturbing details to him was the fact that his data showed that women who delivered their babies outside of the hospital, even homeless women who delivered their babies in the streets, had lower rates of mortality than those in his clinic. So he knew something was wrong, and he was determined to fix it, so he began to carefully study the situation. And he thought that the first thing to study into would be just coming to understand why one of his two wards had a mortality rate so much higher than the other one. Ward 1 was 10%, while Ward 2 was 4%. What accounted for that gulf? So that's where he started. Ward 1 was staffed by male doctors and medical students. Ward 2 was staffed by female midwives. So that was the most obvious distinction. Dr. Semmelweis noticed that one big difference between the two wards was that in Ward 2, the midwives would generally have the women lay on their sides to deliver their babies. In Ward 1, they usually gave birth on their backs. So he thought that might be the reason for the discrepancy, and he asked all of the doctors in Ward 1 to start situating the expectant mothers on their sides instead. 
So they tried this for a few weeks, and there was no change in the death rates. So Semmelweis came up with another hypothesis. He noticed that any time a woman in either of the two wards died, a priest and an attendant ringing a loud bell would walk very slowly through Ward 1, past all of those women in Ward 1. So Dr. Semmelweis said, you know, maybe this, uh, this death bell ringing right in their ears is just terrifying these poor women and causing them to develop fevers and die at higher rates. So he arranged for the priests to change the route that they walked so that they were not walking through Ward 1 anymore. And he persuaded the priests to lose the bells altogether. But once again, there was no change in the mortality rates. So he kept on observing the situation, and right around that time, one of his colleagues, a pathologist in the hospital named Dr. Kolechka, got sick and died. This was not really an uncommon occurrence, for pathologists at that time. But Dr. Semmelweis studied Dr. Kolechka's death really carefully, and he learned that Kolechka's finger had been cut by a scalpel while he was performing an autopsy on a woman who had died of childbed fever. And within a day, Dr. Kolechka had basically all of the same symptoms as childbed fever, and at the same levels of severity. And then he succumbed to those symptoms and he died. Well, this was a big revelation for Dr. Simmelweis. That's when he saw that what they were calling childbed fever wasn't something that only women in childbirth could contract. He saw that it was something that could be spread to anyone in the hospital. And it didn't take long for him to start to think about the fact that the doctors and students who ran Ward 1 were doing autopsies and handling lots of dead bodies, and the midwives in Ward 2 were not doing any autopsies. He hypothesized that when the doctors were dissecting corpses during those autopsies, that they were getting cadaverous particles, he called them, on their hands, little pieces of corpse, basically. And then they would immediately go examine and handle the pregnant women to help them deliver their babies, And Semmelweis hypothesized that some of the particles would end up getting inside the women and make them get sick and die. So Dr. Semmelweis proposed something that to us today sounds so glaringly obvious, it's it's, uh, painful really. But in that hospital in 1846, it was a revolutionary idea. He proposed that the doctors wash their hands. He said, look, if you're handling a corpse of someone who died of a disease, or any corpse really, then you need to wash your hands before you go help a woman deliver her baby. And he ordered the staff there to start washing their hands and instruments with running water and soap and um, chlorine in some cases. And wouldn't you know it, the death rate in Ward 1 fell drastically. It actually fell about 90% which placed it quite a bit lower even than the mortality rate in Ward 2. As I mentioned, this seems so obvious to us now. Today we know that hand-washing is an important tool of public health, and we know that especially if you're handling a biohazard, like a, you know, a dead body, 
of someone who died of a disease especially, that it's absolutely vital to wash your hands to prevent diseases from spreading. But at the time, very little was known about bacteria and the nature of disease. Bacteria were not widely believed to be a cause of disease. You couldn't really see them, so people didn't think they were the culprit. And the germ theory of disease hadn't really come into prominence. But the spread of bacteria was the cause of all of that disease and all those deaths in the maternity wards. It was a bacteria called Group A hemolytic streptococcus. That was the cause. And Dr. Semmelweis figured it out. Many of the doctors in the hospital, there in the, uh, the Vienna General Hospital, didn't really like Semmelweis's idea, though. In fact, many of them were outraged by it. They thought that Semmelweis's observation made them sound guilty, like they were the ones responsible for accidentally killing all those women in the maternity wards, which, of course, was the case. But because of that, the hospital didn't end up sticking to the hand-washing routine that Semmelweis prescribed. They rejected the idea, and later he ended up losing his job. But other hospitals did end up taking his advice, and they had their doctors wash their hands, and soon it caught on in uh, neighboring countries in Europe, and eventually in the United States, and then all around the world, and many lives were saved. That's a, that's a true story that is often told about just a, you know, a milestone in medical history and about a big advancement for science, which saved so many lives. And it eliminated so much unnecessary suffering for people. But the part of the story that we don't often hear is that there was no need for mankind to wait for Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. There was no need for humanity to wait until 1846 or 47 to implement the wisdom of hand-washing. In fact, there was one group of people in Austria and living in pockets all around Europe, really, at that time, who knew about the importance of hand-washing long before that. Just to get some context on this, back in the 1300s, Bring out your a devastating pandemic swept through Europe, which was called Bring the Black Plague, or the Black Death. Bring out your dead! It was uh, one main outbreak, and several other smaller outbreaks that are still well-known and widely studied even to this day because it just decimated the populations in Europe. Historical records have persuaded most scientists that the Black Death of the 1300s was an outbreak of bubonic plague. And infected people would uh, suddenly find grossly swollen lymph nodes under their skin, and then they would come down with an acute fever and begin just vomiting terribly, and with some strains of this affliction, within just a few days, the person's tissue would actually start to turn black and die, and then the people would develop black boils. And from there, it was just a, a very short amount of time, just a few days, until the infected person would die, in the overwhelming majority of cases. So it was uh, just about the most terrible disease and, and the worst death you could imagine. And estimates say that the Black Plague killed somewhere between 40 and 60% of Europe's total population at that time. 
somewhere between 25 and 50 million people at a time when the Earth's population was nowhere near what it is today. So it was an unthinkable number of deaths, and also just such painful and, and terrible deaths. It's actually been argued by many historians that the Black Death was the greatest catastrophe in all of human history. Uh, old J. Benedictow is, is one of the historians that argues that pretty compellingly, I think. And whether or not that's the case, though, these European populations at the time felt helpless in the face of this terrible plague. It wreaked havoc on the Sicilian people, the Frankish peoples, the Gauls and Britons and Saxons, and the uh, Spanish and Portuguese, and it devastated populations in the Low Countries and in Scandinavia too. But wherever the plague went, it killed few Jewish people. Suspiciously few in the eyes of many of the other Europeans. Jewish populations were certainly not immune to the plague, but they died at only half the rate or even less than the Christians and others. There's some debate among historians as to the exact rate of Jewish death from the disease, but no one disputes the fact that compared to the Christian populations and others, the Jewish people were remarkably resilient in the face of the Black Plague. And it's largely because the Jews washed their hands and they engaged in other sanitary practices that the, the other Europeans didn't follow. I've got a quote here from jewishhistory.org that summarizes this pretty well. It's part of their article about the Black Death, and it says, quote, Jewish law compels one to wash his or her hands many times throughout the day. In the general medieval world, a person could go half his or her life without ever washing his hands. According to Jewish law, one could not eat food without washing one's hands, leaving the bathroom and after any sort of intimate human contact. At least once a week, a Jew bathed for the Sabbath. Furthermore, Jewish law prevents the Jew from reciting blessings and saying prayers by an open pit at latrines and at places with a foul odor. The sanitary conditions in the Jewish neighborhood, primitive as they may be by today's standards, were always far superior to the general sanitary conditions. End quote. Well, actually, I'll go on a little bit further here to hit on, uh, on another area where we can draw some parallels with the Ignaz Semmelweis story. So jewishhistory.org goes on to say, quote, Jewish law also prescribes certain sanitary conditions related to burial of the dead. Leaving corpses unburied not only abetted the conditions that spread the bubonic plague, but typhus and other diseases as well. The Jews, on the other hand, had a unique sense of community that not only led them to feel a responsibility to attend to the sick and dying, but caused them to always maintain a formal burial society, whose responsibility it was to make sure that any Jew who died was treated according to Jewish law, including washing the body before it was buried." End quote. So those are uh, just a few examples of, of how Jewish law really safeguarded the Jewish people through this terrible dark period of the Black Plague. The law imposed a sanitary standard on them that ended up sparing them from so much of the suffering that the other medieval populations experienced. But their law didn't protect them from the non-Jewish Europeans 
This is a really sad part of the story, but when the non-Jewish Europeans saw that the Jews were, were uh, not getting hit nearly as hard by the plague, they became suspicious. And they began to actually blame the Jews for causing that disease outbreak. Many of these people were already steeped in deep anti-Jewish rhetoric that they heard from their priests. So they said, the Jews must be poisoning our wells and other totally groundless accusations like that. And as a result of these accusations, the Jews began to come under heavy persecution. The American author Gabriel Walensky touches on this in his book, Six Million Crucifixes. He writes, quote, As a result of this accusation, Christians everywhere in Europe went on a murderous rampage against Jews, burning them alive wherever they found them. In August 1349, the Jewish communities in Mainz and Cologne were exterminated. In February of that same year, the citizens of Strasbourg murdered 2,000 Jews. By 1351, 60 major and 150 smaller Jewish communities had been destroyed. End quote. So it's clear that the Jews were uh, really savagely attacked as a result of their comparatively low death rates during this Black Plague era. The persecution was so severe that it's hard to say whether more Jews died from the plague or from that persecution. But of course we know now that the lower death rates of the Jewish people wasn't because they were using some sort of black magic or intentionally poisoning the wells that the Christians drunk from or anything like that. It was only because they practiced hand washing and other sanitary practices, which kept the disease from spreading through their communities and populations as quickly. We know now that the Black Death was caused by a pathogen called the Yersinia pestis bacterium. It was carried by oriental rat fleas, uh, which lived on the rats that were regular passengers on merchant ships at that time. And those laws of hygiene and sanitation that the Jews abided by really reduced the levels of the bacteria that were able to just, just uh, fester and multiply in the areas where they lived. So the question then becomes, why did the Jews keep those laws? How did they know that it would be good to practice hand-washing and those other practices when no one else seemed to know that at the time? And of course, the answer is because the Hebrew Bible issues some really specific commands regarding sanitation practices and how to deal with waste and diseases and, and things like that. You can look at passages like Leviticus eleven twenty five and several passages in Leviticus 15 that talk specifically about the importance of hand washing. And there's also Deuteronomy 23, 11 through 14, and uh, Leviticus 14. There's also Numbers 19 and Haggai 2, which talks about how someone who's been in contact with a dead body can contaminate other things that they touch. Of course, the ancient Israelites didn't know the intricacies of germ theory any better than the, the populations in Europe in the 1300s did. They didn't know about bacteria like the Yersinia pestis that caused the Black Plague, or the Group A hemolytic Streptococcus that was causing the spread of all that childbed fever in Dr. Semmelweis's day. 
But they knew that touching dead bodies spread disease, and they knew that washing your hands could help to prevent that. They knew all of this more than 3,200 years before Dr. Semmelweis offended all of those doctors in the maternity clinic by telling them that when they did autopsies and then immediately went and delivered babies, they were spreading fatal sicknesses. It makes you wonder how many lives could have been saved over the centuries if people had practiced these ancient laws about hygiene and hand-washing and sanitation. How much needless suffering could have been avoided through the ages? And then once you consider the answers to those questions, from there it makes you wonder about all the other commandments and statutes and judgments and laws that are written in there. How much of the ongoing suffering of all kinds that we still see today could be minimized or avoided altogether if those were considered and abided by. Well, that's the show for today, everyone. We, we appreciate you tuning in to The Sun Also Rises. And please send us any feedback you may have by emailing tsar at kpcg.fm. Or even better, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or find us on Twitter. And we'll leave you today with some famous words by the British thinker George Orwell. He said, In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act.